0: been on a date? Have you ever hosted something? Have you ever seen a colour? If you answered yes to one or more of these questions then boy have we got a show for you Buckle up monkey funsters because this week we punched apathy right in its stupid face. scraped the bottom of the available barrel and we found Stuff! (laughs) I am Craig Eastman and I am here to tell you all about that stuff, but if you thought I would be alone, then you'll be just like the person who came for the fork, sorely disappointed. Joining me tonight is your favourite titan of titillation, that behemoth of brouhaha, the colossus of cinematic scrutiny. Sorry, I've written it down here somewhere. (laughs) I do have it here somewhere. Oh hell, it's Scott Morris. Oh, hello. Those were all supposed to be plural, those titles, by the way, but we will not be joined tonight by uh, Drew. I think primarily because he caught whiff of the fact that mostly tonight we'll be talking about crap horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) And he's done the only sensible (laughs) thing. Never mind. We miss you, Drew. Come back, Drew.
1: Also, bonus points for anyone who recognises the video game reference in Greg's earlier spiel. Yes, perhaps it'll be a prize, (laughs)
0: yes. Ah, There we go. I knew someone would get it. If not one of the (laughs) listeners, then at least yourself, Scott. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not joking about scraping the barrel, really, because we were just talking about this uh, off-recording earlier, Scott. As most people will be aware, there's not a lot of good new movies about
1: Yes, and between the sort of a general state of the world not being the most receptive place for um, anyone's mental state at this uh, point in time, it's difficult to really get excited about a lot of things, particularly Mm. movies that are, for the most part, crap. Not going to be all that great (laughs) because they're all being anything that was going to be any good or impactful is being held for when the cinemas open again, if indeed they ever do. Uh, So, Mm. yeah. Tough times, but we've done what we can with the material available to us.
0: Yes, we have, we have. It's up to you to judge whether or not we've done a good enough job with it, but hey-ho, such is is life. Um, What's the first film we'll be talking about tonight, Scott? It is Dating Amber, um, in which we head back to the mid-90s and a
1: small town in Ireland that's not exactly a hotbed of LGBT acceptance, as the nuns teaching sex education, I suppose we'll call it, point out. That's a problem for school kids like Amber, played by Lola Pettigrew, who's still in the closet but knows that that closet... With this is marked lesbian and also for Eddie Fiona Shea, who's not ready to admit to anyone that he's gay even to himself In an effort to head off the playground taunts, Amber suggests that she and Eddie start a fake relationship, although the exact level of the fakeness proves something of a challenge for the confused Eddie, particularly after some trips to the more welcoming big city where Amber finds someone that she'd want to have a real relationship with. The shock of this could have Eddie do something quite silly and continue to deny his sexuality, but thankfully this is an easygoing comedy and not a gritty study of depression. So that's headed off swiftly and we can all head into a new millennium in harmony. Well, Perhaps not, but even with current headwinds, I think we can say that society these days is a little more accepting, what, 25 years after this is set? Although Mm. I expect that school kids remain as horrible to each other now as they do in Dating Amber. Refleshingly, this is a film which shows a fairly realistic low level of horribleness, more or less in line with what I remember my contemporaneous schooling being like – as opposed to the American version shown in film, which more often seem like a particularly harrowing episode of Oz. <laughs> Dating Amber is a consistently gently amusing coming-of-age tale with likeable, sympathetic performances from Pettigrew's uh, O'Shea and highly capable support from the likes of Sharon Horgan and Barry Ward. Its only real problem is one that is barely worth caring about, that being that if, like us, you're old enough to have seen this rodeo a few dozen times before, there's not that much new here, with perhaps the exception of location. Uh, however, that's not stopped, check notes, every rom-com in the history of film, so I don't see why that should stop this film. It's unchallenging stuff, perhaps, but it is greatly enjoyable, nonetheless. It's a fun little romp, not particularly demanding of you, and it's uh, in many ways a perfect fit for these times. Um, um, Nothing earth-shaking, but it's pretty funny, and that's pretty much all you can ask for this kind of
0: thing. (laughs) We'll take it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) levity levity on tap uh, I have not seen this film I was not even aware of its existence until you typed it into a Slack channel a couple of nights ago Scott So <laughs> I have nothing to add I have nothing to add whatsoever we may as well move on then to a film which we have both seen uh, yes. I will talk briefly about Host uh, I will say this for Global Pandemic Scott they seem to inspire opportunistic marketing and creativity in equal measure We'd all just about come to terms with the idea of lockdown, I think, at the point which Netflix were busy capitalising on the rights to contagion. And around the same time, a young filmmaker named Rob Savage played a Zoom video call prank on his friends that ended up becoming an online sensation. In that video, Savage complains of hearing footsteps in the attic above him, which his friends insist he investigates. One jump scare and a few million views later, Savage was knocking at the door of Shudder, AMC's subscription horror service, with a pitch to make the thing a feature. If nothing else, I admire his audacity. I like nothing more than a good horror film, although I'm not particularly a fan of the genre at large. And the problem is that 98 to 99% of all horror films are quantifiably insufferable garbage. (laughs) Uh, What I do appreciate about the genre is that it has proven itself a fertile ground upon which many directors have earned their stripes, encouraging as it does creativity, inventiveness and fiscal prudence. Particularly true in this age of the omnipresent high-quality video camera in your pocket, almost anyone can make a horror film, but that's a double-edged sword where one side is markedly more honed and sharper than the other. In Host, a group of friends coordinated by a young woman named Haley, meet online over a Zoom call to conduct a seance with a psychic named Salen. One of the group, who takes us all about as seriously as I, Scott, or Drew probably would, (laughs) plays a prank on the group that backfires spectacularly, releasing a murderous rogue spirit. Jokes on you, rational people. (laughs) The best thing about Host is it's perfectly timed opportunism. With a literally captive global audience who were forced to acquaint themselves with the plot's key mechanic pretty much overnight, this is very much a case of striking while the iron is red hot. Now, the film does not really avoid the tropes of the genre, and much of what happens here will be familiar to anyone who has seen the likes of Paranormal Activity in its ilk, though there is one nice instance which plays on the video background feature of conferencing software. For the most part, the action relies on jump scares, and while we've rounded on those in the past, these are at least mostly effective. The reason I'm not going to completely unload on Host, however, is that I will allow most premises at least a finite amount of my attention, which brings us to the second best thing, the running time. (laughs) At a shade under one hour, Host may not have set my world alight, but it did at least respect my time. We've spoken a lot recently about movies outstaying their welcome, and that at least is one criticism it would be churlish to let Is this movie ever going to trouble the ranks of the few great horror movies? No. Did I find myself glancing at my watch? Also no. Host is by no means the first horror movie to address the information age of increasingly isolated online relationships. 2014's Unfriended and 2018's Searching are both notable examples of directors who got there first. What this movie does do well is to understand the limitations of its chosen medium and leverage that into something which is familiar enough to appeal to fans of the genre and individual enough to stand out. Ultimately, I am never going to watch this movie ever again, (laughs) which sounds like a put down, but I would temper that by saying that in no way, shape or form do I grudge host its time with me. I would also add, Scott, before I ask you for comment, that I watched this in the most optimal way possible, which was on a laptop, and it's one of the few films where I make a case for doing that. Yes, well, my
1: pulse certainly quickened while I was watching Host, but that's because I was watching it on an iPad while working out on an exercise bike, so (laughs) (laughs) whether that's related to the content or not, I don't know. Um, Yes, uh, I... I, I didn't mind it, I think, in terms of the quality of hosts. Uh, I don't think I've got a great deal to add to what you've said there. It's fine because it's not long enough to get annoying. Um, mm. I think I think it worked better as that Zoom uh, tweet prank <laughs> in instance because I, I went and watched that afterwards. And I think it probably worked better as that one sort of jump-scare gag because basically that's all it's got. But yeah, uh, but That's all it's got, at least in terms of the horror axis of it. But, I mean, to be fair... I didn't mind watching these characters. I don't, none of them were particularly annoying. They all felt reasonably realistic. Um, I thought, like it, it did, for better or worse, feel like a Zoom call between a group of friends. Um, so it, it does do what it's trying to set out to do pretty well. I think when it gets to the actual scares, yes, it, it, it's doesn't have anything new to show you. It's just a a different way to package up a found footage film. Um, So it's basically the Blair Witch Project, but in a series of Zoom windows rather than uh, as one one videotape unspooling. So Mm. it's not really all that innovative, but in terms of just capturing the zeitgeist, there's not been very many better examples of something like that, <laughs> no. Along and capitalizing on what we're, what we're all going through, so uh, but yeah, it can certainly respect it
0: on that axis. I think it'll remain an interesting document, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the actual characters. I went in expecting to find these people insufferable because there is, without fail, there is nothing worse than actors in uh, you know cheap, cheap movies, actors who are clearly at a level of will work for food Trying yeah. to act in a naturalistic fashion yeah. Because it almost never works um, But these guys Largely avoided that, so kudos to them
1: Yes, um, even the uh, I guess this is one film that has a token guy In it, and uh, he, he Was quite <laughs> entertaining, um, particularly because He's the most foul-mouth of them all, which I always appreciate mm. In any kind of work of entertainment uh, Oh, and remarkably, yes, it passes The Bechtel test Oh yes, quite easily Yes, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if it gets points off for killing them all, but uh um, you know, you know. They're at least they're there. Swings yeah. and roundabouts. Yes. Um, as as further homework, I thought I'd have another look at some um some films that this kind of draws inspiration from, I did actually watch one of the Unfriended films, the more, the later Dark Web, which was... My God, man, what's, what's was, come over you? ...was very much not a good use of my time, and I would recommend against that. Host was much better than that. But if you do want something that's sort of similarly themed, theme, at least in terms of the kind of COVID lockdown kind of thing, uh, the BBC put out a six-part series of, like, 10-minute um, episodes-ish called Staged, which is between well nominally it's supposed to be David Tennant and Michael Sheen rehearsing a a play that they couldn't get to because of lockdown and all that stuff Um, but yeah it is just a a comedy study into these guys relationships devolving and their egos falling apart under the course of talking to each other and it's pretty funny Um, I'm I'm not the world's biggest David Tennant fan but of course Michael Sheen is a national treasure and when you put them together Mm -hmm. it turns out they're both very funny and it's a good little show uh, taking on uh, lockdown from a different axis and I probably would recommend that over this if you add all that together it's probably about an hour by itself on the iplayer so yeah i think it's worth making time for both of them actually i i, I think i would almost recommend toast if you mm. want some if you're in the market for any kind of horror film you want something that's uh a bit more dialed into the times we are. Um, Host is as good a horror film as I've seen in a long time, which is not mm-hmm. necessarily a great recommendation. I've not seen many good ones, but this was one of the least offensive ones in all that time. So, yeah, uh, it's yeah. certainly not a classic for the ages, as you say, uh, as anything other than a little document of this current time that we're living in. But. Yeah,
0: as part of that, it's worth giving it an hour of your time. I think it wasn't that bad. I think it's a great advert for why most horror films should be under an hour. Because make no mistake about it, Host is a crap one hour forty movie. Yes, um, Yes. and it does exactly what all other all other one hour forty horror movies um, ought to do, which is just cut all the crap out. Yes, Um, and if nothing else, it demonstrates the fact that okay, it might not end up being Citizen Kane, but at least I won't actively detest it. (laughs) Um, because as I say I I will give most things an hour of my time um, uh, before sort of you know impatiently tapping my feet and checking my watch so yeah kudos for that here's someone who understands the limitations of what they're working with and for once does not try to stretch it out purely for the sake of it
1: yes and appreciates that most horror films are not in fact works where we're we're able to um, critique humanity's foibles in much way other than just scaring
0: them so Yes, well where does our next film fall uh, in that spectrum, Scott? Blood Quantum sounds like it ought to be a horror movie
1: Yes, Blood Quantum is certainly a zombie film, and that may be as much as you need to hear about it either to add it or exclude it from your watch list but I suppose I'm due a little more information to you, so here we go On a First Nations reserve, the local sheriff of the Red Crow tribe trailer, Michael Grey Eyes, stoically does the rounds, even managing not to seem too perturbed when the gutted fish his father's caught sprays Back to life and start flopping around. To be fair, he's distracted by a call to pick up his sons, Forrest Goodluck's Joseph, and local bad influence Keowa Gordon's Lysol from the nearest town. There, the all too familiar to an audience at least start of a zombie outbreak happens. Smash Gut 2 6 months later, where a strange twist of fate has made the Red Crows immune to zombification take that small box. The reservation which is on an island provides a defensible base for them to hold while scavenging for resources to help themselves and any non-shambling refugees from the mainland. This however rankles Lysol who'd rather not add any more mouse defeat, and has resolved to do something about it and the chaos that this unleashes provides the main narrative reason for the continued dripping apart and chewing of people which is not something that their antibodies can do much about. Now, it's not all zombie action. In fact, like most of the better horror films, the central planks of it are barely about zombies at all, with the bulk of the emotional work of the film coming from Trailer and his ex-wife, Ellie Maya Tailfeathers, as Joss, wondering if they've been suitable parents to their kids, just as Joseph struggles with his impending fatherhood in a certainly very different world. That said, it's not doing anything that you've not seen before, and some of the actions Lysol takes seems mainly in the interest of making a plot happen, rather than anything believably driven from his character. But, well, find me a horror film where character motivations aren't a problem, and I will award you a special prize. <laughs> Blood Quantum does win a few representation points for its setting and its stars, although I'm not convinced that it's doing very much with that. While clearly the title and the inverse viral resistance thing points to a First Nations a narrative and Native American history, it's window dressing. The same way that being shot in a mall is window dressing in Dawn of the Dead, not a treatise on consumerism. Really, uh, Blood Quantum's main problem is external. I imagine there's many people like us who have sat through quite enough zombie movies and television series over the past, what, 20 years, and aren't quite ready for a resurgence in them yet. But, <laughs> begrudgingly, between some commendable, if perhaps a touch to restrained performances, and some pleasingly gross effects work, and also a sword-wielding, ass-kicking grandpa, if you're in the market for a zombie film, this is actually a pretty good option. I I think I am still not quite my uh, expiration date for the amount of zombie films that came out over the past, you know, with like, what, round about the late 90s to 2000s, going up all the way through to oh, the kind of days, days and all that yeah. stuff. There's, there's just, I have just feel like I've seen more than enough zombie films for the foreseeable future. So I couldn't get all that invested in Bo- Blood Quantum, but... Uh, I don't really have any great complaints about it. It's well executed. The effects work's done well enough. It's not all just sort of random zombie actions. There's enough characterization there to keep things moving, um, to be invested in the characters. It's it is a good zombie film. Um, I think whether you can get excited about that will really just depend on how how you feel about zombie films in this day and age. I just personally, I've I've seen enough of them. I, I don't necessarily need to see any more. But even with that immense handicap, I didn't hate Blood Quantum. So, uh, yeah. If you're in the market for that kind of thing, I think I would ask uh, I would certainly I would actually recommend it. Um I'd just say give this one a go. But like I say, if 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 you think you've seen enough of them, you probably had you probably have. It's not adding anything due to the genre, but if you're in the market for more of it, this is certainly more of it.
0: This The sad thing about the surplus of zombie movies and uh, zombie-themed media that we find ourselves among is that I've never felt the compulsion because I'm so sickened by it, or sickened with it, not sickened by it. I'm not morally <laughs> outraged. <laughs> um, I am so kind of worn out with it all that I've never really felt the compulsion to go back to the likes of 28 Days Later, which is, yeah. if I recall, is probably where this all kicked off again because it reinvented zombies... And that was early two thousands? Yeah, that sounds about yeah, right. There or thereabouts. Um and I remember that being a really good movie, but I just can't kind of bring myself to go by there's just so much crap to wade through that is zombie themed now that it's kind of lost all meaning in the same way that if you say a word over and over and over it just <laughs> loses all meaning and just becomes sounds. Um uh yes. So yeah. I don't think I'll be going out of my way to check this bad boy out.
1: Yeah, for what it's worth, we did a, a zombie episode a while back where we did go back to twenty eight days later, and it, mm. it does hold up. Um, I would certainly recommend you giving that again if you I'll go again if you if you can spare the
0: time or the inclination for it. I might do that. Right, which leaves us, Scott, with color out of space. When is a color not a color? There are two answers I will accept. One of which is when you're Rhythm Nation. (laughs) On the off chance that you're not down to discuss Janet Jackson, I will instead refer you to the second acceptable answer, which would be when it is colour out of space. If that means nothing to you, then I can only assume you're no fan of H.P. Lovecraft. The Gardner family have, we learn, abandoned city life for the comfort of remote New England woodlands, occupying a grand old house once belonging to the father of patriarch Nathan, Nick Cage, While Nathan's focus alternates between cooking dubious meals, drinking bourbon and tending his alpacas, they're the animal of the future. (laughs) His wife, Teresa, Jolie Richardson, maintains income by trading stocks over a tenuous satellite internet connection. Their three children are, in descending order of age, a developing stoner, a Wiccan witch and a relatively normal young lad of about seven or eight. Into this idyllic, if disorganised world, comes one night, a meteorite, landing just outside the gardener home, next to their well. Initially shrugged off by authorities and somewhat made fun of by a local news channel, the otherworldly interloper soon proves to be more unusual and problematic than it first appears, as it transpires to be a vessel for a colour beyond description, a colour that begins to infect and mutate everything in the surrounding area, including the gardener's. (laughs) (laughs) generally regarded as one of its author's finer short stories, Colour Out of Space has been adapted a few times now, and while I've never seen any of the other attempts, I can understand why it's an attractive source material. The text is vivid in its description of the setting, suggestive enough in its narration to be unsettling, but vague enough in plot and detail around the events that befall the gardeners to make it an attractive scaffold upon which to hang any number of potential themes. With that in mind, I'll begin my observations on a positive. This movie is certainly at the better end of the quality spectrum as far as Lovecraft adaptations go. Though as many listeners will appreciate, that statement comes with the caveat that the bar by which we measure this is pretty low. (laughs) Part of the problem faced by filmmakers in adapting Lovecraft across the decades, and stop me if you heard this before, has been the author's reliance on suggestion rather than explicit description when conveying the horrors that have unfolded, compounded by the fact we are often being related these stories after the fact by a narrator who may or may not have been directly adjacent to said events. Colour Out of Space was one of Lovecraft's first stories to establish this style, and in bringing an entirely implied menace to a visual medium, director Richard Stanley faces all the same issues as his peers. It's relatively easy to label a colour as indescribable in text, but how (laughs) do you show me that on film? (laughs) For the most part, Stanley, who works here from a script he co-wrote, does an admirable job of setting up both The Family and The Menace. Nathan, Teresa, Ben, Lavinia and Jack are, in spite of some potentially irritable idiosyncrasies, a pretty likeable family with a laudable conviction to their change in lifestyle. Cage in particular is as good as I've probably seen him in some time, making Nathan broadly relatable, even as he demonstrates to a nonplussed onlooker the intricacies of correctly milking an alpaca. (laughs) Cage channels his inner weirdness in a way that is immediately gently humorous to the point of endearing Sparing as a city escaping archetype who might otherwise have been insufferable Similarly, Richardson avoids falling into stereotype as the power mother Keeping her stock trading frustrations to a minimum And together with Cage, she engages as emotionally As we witness some tender moments between the couple Centred around Teresa's recovery from a cancer operation My chief gripe, arguably the more important of the two major ones I have, is that the point at which we start to witness the meteor's ill effects denotes a pretty sharp demarcation between this and a complete halt to any character development. Just as we are coming to empathise with these characters, we become distracted by the shift in focus towards the bizarre, and the next thing we know, all hell is breaking loose. Here we come to the second concern, which is that Stanley inevitably falls into the age-old trap of showing, not telling the horror, and in this case, it's time that would have been better spent getting to know the family dynamic, and, as a consequence, anything resembling a theme. I bring theme into this not because it's necessary for a horror movie, but because I have the feeling Stanley is trying to work something grander into the mix, and I really wanted him to succeed. For example, enough references made to Nathan's drinking habits that I'd be tempted to suggest the colour is actually an analogue for his habit. The news report scene plays into this with humour, and every time Nathan pours a drink, the camera really wants me to notice the increasingly odd chromatic tendencies of the ice. But nothing much else comes of it. Similarly, Teresa's implied battle with cancer would easily play into the body horror aspects that emerge increasingly toward the film's final act. But if that's the case, it's not really enough just to mention the word, and then never really revisit it. There is still much to like here, though by the time we reach the final couple of reels, most of which feels lifted almost directly from the 2011 remake of The Thing, it's only really Cage's performance that holds matters together. And by holding together, I mean like duct tape can technically hold a bike together, so long as you're not planning on going off any sweet jumps. (laughs) I was partly sold on Colour Out of Space on the basis that it was full cage. However, I have to report at peak madness, this is more 85% cage, give or take. (laughs) If nothing else, one must remember this is Stanley's first film in 23 years, following the debacle of Dr Moreau. And it's not without promise, considering the director has stated he would subsequently like to tackle Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. Nonetheless, I can't help but wonder what might have been had this fallen into the more capable hands of someone who understands creeping intensity, like Shane Carruth, or character, like, for example, Mario Heller. I was slightly disappointed with this, Scott, after a strong start. I'm intrigued to hear what you find... It came very close. I think, just to 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 put the, my broken record back on again, if this
1: was about 20 minutes shorter, it's, it's pushing, what, it's not quite two hours, one hour 50 maybe from memory. I think it could have done with compressing some of its horror moments mm. into a shorter time to kind of build that a bit more, to, you know, to kind of ramp that up a little bit more. Mm. Um, I, because it spends a lot awful lot of time well, particularly showing not telling the body, the body horror aspects of which you describe, um, while a shocking and horrible thing is also lingered on for long enough yeah. for it to become ridiculous yeah. to the point where it was actually laughing at it, and that's obviously not what you want from a horror film. No, that um, needed to be one scene. Yes, yes. I mean, the way that sort of resolves itself is a really creepy moment but mm-hmm. unfortunately it's something that's been slightly undercut by the what seven or eight scenes before it which have kind of lingered over it. it it could have done with being a bit more focused on trying to get to the scary bits particularly when a lot of what it, it does in other elements uh kind of works pretty well um, mm. it, it does a reasonable job of I, mean, I think lovecraft's always difficult to that because anything that's when horror is cosmic in scale it's not even personal enough to really care about what's killing you it's it's not like it's Mm. a a a vengeful spirit trying to do something it's something completely incomprehensible to anyone who's looking at it or going to be trying to tackle it and that's going to be very difficult to try and get across and this does a pretty reasonable job for a lot of it and the way Mm. that it kind of just the the weird things that are happening in the the way that done subtle things to some characters at some points before ramping up into the extremes and most of that works pretty well it
0: just can't quite land it at the end yeah. because it's gone on for a little bit too long. Um, See that's what that's what I mean by uh, because you've hit the nail on the head about talking about the cosmic scale of the horror. It's that thing we've discussed before in like superhero movies and stuff where if if the stakes are the end of the world, you know, if 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 the stakes are the protagonist is something so large that it's almost unimaginable, then your movie needs to be about something else. Yes, and it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. It's really frustrating because it feels like this movie sets out to be about something else, and then just gives up on it. Yes, and then becomes too obsessed with just painting everything sort of pinkish purple
1: and yes. um, having people stare at things. And um, it's always going to be a tough thing to try and do. And I think this this may be as well as you can do it. I've not, as we've said many times before, nothing's not. Um, it's not that anything is unadaptable, but mm. perhaps certain things just aren't going to work in this format. And this is perhaps... God, I hope I'm proven wrong, but I think a lot of what Lovecraft tries to do is something that can't quite be replicated on anything other than that. Um, It's trying to put the visuals of something that is Undescribable in text is always going to be very difficult, and this mm-hmm. doesn't quite land it. Yeah, <laughs> but you almost so-
0: have to—you almost have to do something entirely different if you're going to convey it uh, visually. I spent a lot of time last night and this morning thinking about exactly this same thing, Scott. And you know, when when I think most about it, do you know what the most successful Lovecraft adaptations have been? Are um, hmm. audio productions? Yeah. So there are there are Lovecraft podcasts out there, and and pu- because it's purely an, an audible medium, um, and the visual aspect is left to your imagination. those work so much better and i just I wonder, as you 've just touched on there whether or not really there 's any point in trying to adapt lovecraft for film if you're going to stick if you 're yeah. going to stick broadly to the th- to the text without doing something really quite radical with it
1: I think the more senses you try and involve because uh, the harder it gets and what brings us up is the point where nick cage's character you know he he finds that the smell of this meteorite is a kind of meteorite that falls to earth is, mm. is disgusting to him but no one else notices and you kind of wonder why it's that done then it, it kind of gets explained later on but again the only way you can get across that this is a bad smell is by him going "Ooh, this smells bad which is clumsy and mm. what it's trying to get to is the nature that you know the, the, because this is a this is an a horror that is operating on senses and scales that we don't have. This is Synthesia or whatever it is. Um, mm. you know, all that kind of made writ large. Um, but it's clumsy to do a show on film. It would be better just not to do it at all or yeah. come up with it a different way because just having to go, oh god that smells bad is just weird. Um, yeah. it, it, it doesn't quite work on a film. In many ways the less senses that you can involve when you're talking about something as unimaginable as what Lovecraft horror tends to be about is perhaps the only way you can do it, by hmm. having all that just run riot in your mind and uh, coming up with whatever horrors you can come up with in your head. Um, yeah. Which is the meta-problem of every horror film. It generally is scarier to have the things that you don't see rather than the things that actually do. So when it does show you and <laughs> what, what it's come up with as a as its horror vector, it tends not to be as... Convincing as something you could have come up with by yourself to your own, you know, tailored to your own personal horrors. Um, mm. When you're just, if you was just describe two people fusing together, I think you could probably come up with a pretty disgusting mental image that is perhaps not reflected in what the special effects artists have managed to come up with here, which is yeah. not so good. So, mm. yeah, it, it's ambitious, and I applaud that. And I didn't hate it. Um, I don't mm. think I've said this in all the way i all I've been talking about it. I actually relatively enjoyed this. Uh, yeah. I certainly was not at any point bored in the uh, one hour 50 minutes I can't quite bring myself to recommend it but um, I mm. I do on a lot of levels appreciate the work and the craft that's gone into it you know Cage's performance is, is good but as is I think everyone else in there even um, Cheech is it Cheech or Chong I forget Tommy Chong Tommy Chong um, yeah even he's doing pretty well in his, his role there's a lot of Things that I can applaud in this, but ultimately it, it, it doesn't quite hang together. It's one of the more memorable horror films Ooh. I've seen. It's, it's probably actually sitting on the same level of interesting curiosity for me as um, In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, um, I thought you might say that. that one, which is the same one. It's like, I I appreciate the effort that's been gone into it. I don't think it's quite landed to it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's... It, it's ambitious and I I like that you've done it, it's more interesting than most horror films that are of, of much uh, smaller outlooks but yeah, ultimately yeah. it doesn't quite stick the landing
0: yeah, I wonder if you might mention an amount of madness because uh, in my mind this sits there with that as well as like I you know I'm not going to be massively compelled to come back and watch this again anytime hmm. soon but I understand why other people do like it and uh, to be clear it is a swing and a hit but it's it's not a home run it's uh, yeah. you know Richard Stanley's gotten to first or second base I think on this <laughs> but um which is not uh, what you want to do with a Cthulian horror really <laughs> <pretty> disgusting <laughs> well, listen, man I'm not going to kink shame him <laughs> Let's not go down that route Um, But yeah, it's certainly certainly interesting If you were a fan of uh, the authors um, As Mm -hmm. I broadly am I suppose there are several of his works That I really, really like And a good deal of his work that I don't then yes, I would. I would say go ahead and check it out. It does sort of make me slightly relieved though that we that we never did get uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, at the Mountains of Madness, yeah. um, because he strikes me as someone who really is a, a really strongly visual director, and I don't know based on his works now and seeing the experience that Richard Stanley's had with this movie that I necessarily think. For all that people were getting really excited about the fact that oh we're going to get a proper Lovecraft movie, I don't think it would have been. But you know we'll we'll never know. I can't I can't say I shared their enthusiasm for that. I think there's a a, yeah yeah that's another one of those that would live best in the audio realm. I think.
1: Yeah, it it may be the case that there is no such thing as a proper um, Lovecraft adaptation on film, Mm -hmm. and in a way, I'd probably argue there's probably the same. You could maybe say the same thing about. what a terrible time for his name to pop out of my head. Um, sci-fi author you love, Philip K. Dick. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I wouldn't. I, I'm not sure there's been a proper Philip K. Dick adaptation either. Um, no. You can take elements that has of his work that's been been had and kind of spit it into something else. But I mean, the closest you could come to would probably be a Scanner Darkly, which was a very mm-hmm. abstract take, uh, at least in terms of a film, yeah. of, of that that work. And, I'll, you know, it, as I said, it's not that it's unadaptable, it's just that the adaptations may not really be possible to do the yeah. source material justice
0: well the reason Blade Runner works is because it takes a, a, you know a, a broad theme from the source material and does something yeah. com- essentially completely different with it I mean that's that movie has got almost no resemblance whatsoever exactly, to yeah, yeah. Do Android's Dream of, of Electric Sheep um, So, and I think similarly with this where this is what I mean by colour out of space is, is a, a good horror story to hang something else entirely on thematically yeah. um, you could get away with making a really great family drama about how a family falls apart for various reasons if the colour out of space is analogous to the father's drinking habits or the mother's pursuit of her career or something to do with um, the way her cancer has affected the family dynamic or something like that. But it would have to be, first and foremost, a family drama and not a horror about the colour magenta (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah. so that's that's the only way I can envisage something like this working, because at the point at which you s- show a fused mass of dogs and alpacas in a bar and Nick Cage going mental and blowing their heads off with a shotgun, it's like, yeah, okay uh, reading the short story, and I had to It'd been a few years, uh, quite some time since I'd actually read Colour Out of Space, so immediately after watching the film last night, I went to bed and, and read through it in my bed, and it's like, yeah, there is there there is none of this in the, the short story. <laughs> yeah. It's all a second-hand telling of something that happened like 50 years previously, and none of that horror is explicitly described. It's purely the only description is of the mental effect that certain events which took place took on the, the father of the family, uh, who in the novel is um nahum uh and we are told what happened to his family um but the you know the only interaction any character has with anyone is someone who's telling the story of their relationship that they had had with nahum and how they witnessed him change uh to a third party um who's sort of who's visiting and there's very little else by way of of description of the actual events, so they have made or Richard Stanley has made a conscious choice to amplify the visual horror aspect of this. Whereas I would argue you have to take absolutely the opposite route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, but I mean an admirable attempt for all that, and I I, I did enjoy a good deal of it. Um, I think the first hour of it's pretty strong. Yeah. Um, but I would argue that this uh, for the most part the second half of it sort of descends a little bit too much into madness and with <laughs> yeah. not enough focus on the characters. so
1: Yes, um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, but I would still be very interested in seeing if uh, we can see the Dunwich horror as he hopes to get. To. I would like to see that movie,
0: so I hope it gets oh, here's Here's what worries me about that, is that if I recall correctly, because, again, it's been a long time, time since I read the book, but that short story... D- does culminate in a pretty, uh, it's one of the few times I think where something is described visually quite explicitly, I think, for a Lovecraft, nor unless I'm confusing it with another story. That's the one about the thing living in the barn, right? I think it is,
1: yes. It's been a long time for self as well. Yes. I want to
0: say that culminates in something a little (laughs) bit more explicit in the book. So that kind of, that maybe worries me a bit because I think that (laughs) might work even less well potentially on film. But hey, Mm. what do I know? I will say this for Richard Stanley, he's made more movies than I have. (laughs) (laughs) And I I would trust him more with a movie than I would trust myself. So. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I did quite like this for the most part, but um, again, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be rushing back to watch it again anytime soon, unless we have a compelling reason to do so. Yes, I agree. Oh, I think does that just about wrap it up tonight, I th- Scott? I believe that it does. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Have we had any contact recently? Um, um, because I am averse to Twitter these days. No. Mm. <laughs> <Sadly>. Fair enough. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's fine. Have I converted you? <laughs>
1: Pretty much, um, I I keep a Twitter account and a Facebook account just so I can run the uh, <laughs> post the links to these uh, podcast episodes, and that's it. So,
0: <laughs> yay! Well, if you do feel to get, uh, if you do feel compelled to get in touch with us, how can people do that, Scott? Well, you could do so on Twitter, we're still there at Fuzz on Film.
1: Uh, you could do so on Facebook at facebook.com dot com slash film or you could email
0: us if you're old school at podcast at fuzzonfilm dot com. by the sounds of it, the third of those options might be the only one we respond to at this point (laughs) Um, but yes, feel free to drop us a line if you agree or if you strongly disagree or heck, if you just want to know as you're alive out there um, (laughs) by all means, we'd love to hear from you so yes, drop us a line Uh, in the meantime, I have been Craig and Scott was Scott, goodbye we'll catch you on the other side